0: Have you ever noticed that, as you read the Gospels, that Jesus always asks you to reevaluate? Like, for example, when he says, um, when he says something like, "If you want to be my disciple, you have to first take up your cross and follow me." For whoever does not lose his life for my sake cannot save it. I mean, a comment like that has to kind of force you to reevaluate your whole life. <coughs> or, in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. You know, <laughs> I mean, that really has to make you reevaluate what sin really is. A of people say, oh, you know, no, no, what can be it to harm in this or that? But Jesus life to doesn't take that attitude. It kind of really asked you to reevaluate. Or when Jesus says, whoever puts his hand to the plough and then looks back is not fit for service in the kingdom of God. I mean you then you really are asked to reevaluate just the choices you make in life and what you look back to. I mean, it's incredible how almost all the way through the gospel, instead of, for example, picking up a sword, he's actually picking up words and saying to people, to the Jewish people at the time, and us Gentiles as well, if, we're, if you're a Gentile, he's saying, reevaluate your whole life. And part of the parables are asking people to do just that. So let's pray. Father, help us not to assume that we, um, we know exactly what Jesus is going to say. Because if we have that attitude, then, then we'll be less likely to reevaluate our lives. But Father, we want to, because we believe that Jesus has come to tell us the way to you and the way to be a part of your kingdom. So, Father, please be with us by your Holy Spirit pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a look at the outline. I've actually asked a question at the beginning, which is, what have you done to grace? Now, what have you done to it? What have we done to it? Have a look at Ephesians 3. So, get out to Bible and have a look at Ephesians 3. I want to show you something that I never noticed before. Ephesians 3. the around. You've got two next to you, pass it behind to somebody who has none. Ephesians 2. 3. Ephesians 3. Verse 17. Okay, everyone got one? Or... Okay, never noticed this before. Ephesians 3:17 halfway through the
1: verse
0: Halfway through the verse it says and I pray that you Ephesians being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and I pray that you might know this love that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now I used to ride right over that verse, between chapter 2, dead in your sins, chapter 4, some practical stuff. You used to ride right over that verse, until I actually had another look at it. He says, the the verse before, I've got to get on my knees to do this. How powerful is that as a gesture? I've got to get on my knees and pray that you, he says to a church, might have the power, that's a strong word, that you might have the power together with all the saints, so that uh, the saints being believing people who are special to God, that you might have the power together with all the saints to do what? What's his prayer? to grasp something, to actually comprehend in some way, even though it surpasses knowledge, to comprehend just exactly how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ, a love that surpasses even knowledge, with the result that you'll be filled with the measure of the fullness of God. I used to write over these verses, not anymore i just realised that what he's saying is you actually need prayer and you need Christian help to grasp just how big it is. See, I reckon we assent to it. I mean, we just put it on the back of a bumper sticker and put it on the back of a car. God loves you. But that's not Paul's view. Paul declares it, yes. But his view about love is that the only way that you can really comprehend it, if that's the right word, the only way you can really comprehend it is to pray that you might have the power to grasp it. not that interesting? It suddenly puts some perspective on just simply ticking a box in church about the love of God and walking out the door. So I want to ask the question, what have we done to grace? Grace, grace, or the love of God in life. Robert Louis Stevenson said, said this, there is nothing but God's grace. We walk upon it, we breathe it, we live by it and we die by it. It makes the nails and the axles of the universe. Former slave trader John Newton had to pause in the first line of his song that he wrote. He had to pause in Amazing Grace. What he wanted to say was, Amazing Grace saves the wretch like me. What he actually wrote was, Amazing Grace Brackets. Thinks about the word. How sweet the sound. Then back to his sentence that saved a wretch like me. He had to actually pause to say that even when he thinks about the word grace, he considers it sweet. And grace is totally linked in the gospel with the person and work of Jesus Christ. Johnny Erickson Tartar, who uh, had a diving accident and ended up in a wheelchair, the very person who you suspect could end up being angry at God and believing that God doesn't love, said this, God doesn't just give us grace, He gives us Jesus, the Lord of grace. Which I think is why... Fernando Ortega, a musician, can write these lyrics. Lyrics that have been re-sung by Nathan Casker, for those of you who know him, in a CD on his last album. But this is what he says. In the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. And when I am alone, and when I am alone, and when I am alone, give me Jesus. And when I come to die, and when I come to die, and when I come to die, give me Jesus. You can have all this world, he says, but give me Jesus. does not get any more profound than that. I think that's why you've got to have the power to grasp it, you know? <laughs> Something like that. I, I mean, I'm moved now, but well, I'm not easily moved, but, and we often wait for someone to move us. That's why you go to church and you assess what happens there, you're waiting for someone to move you on this matter. Grace is what's said before dinner. Graceful is the correct adjective... To give to a swan. Grace is how you describe a person who's been to department school, and grace is the name for a girl. Also, an idea that change the world. <laughs> but when we're, we we're asked what grace is in the Bible, we answer. We put up our hand in youth group or centre school or church and say, unmerited favour. And the teacher says. Ironically, good answer, gold star for you. (laughs) (laughs) Or we say grace, God riches at Christ's expense. But we're not easily moved, or we wait for someone to move us. When we ask what we think about grace, we say, wasn't Yancey's book, what's so amazing about grace, wasn't the book amazing? Maybe. Or, I haven't read it yet, my no planning to. Good book, by the way. Uh, I guess one of the things we might not realise is what we've done to grace. We might not realise how shocking grace actually is. What do I mean? Well, listen to the sentence. I love you by grace alone. What are you saying to me? I love you, but it's only because I'm a generous person. What are you saying to me? Are you love me, but only because they are generous? Can you see how that's a shock, how grace is a shock? You know, the interesting thing about Judaism is it's always been about grace, Judaism. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. Worth writing that down and having a look at and, and meditating on it tonight. Deuteronomy 7, 7, God whispers Israel a secret. He tells them why, and I love the phrase, he tells them why he, sets their, why he sets his affection on them. He says, not because you're the largest nation or the best, no, you're the smallest of nations. I set my affection on you, little Israel, simply because I set my affection on you or in the NIVs, I set my affection on you because I've loved you. Or in other words, I loved you because I loved you. (laughs) I remember going to my minister when I was 16 and I, I had a really curly theological question for him and he said, I'll answer the question for you when you answer my question. I said, okay, shoot. He says, why does God love you? Oh, because... No, because he <laughs> set his affection on Israel, because he set his affection on Israel. But I guess just like us, the truth didn't sink for the, in for the Israelites in Jesus' day, and it needed God to hold up the kind of glaring contradictions in the way they think. Because grace is counterintuitive. What is intuitive is to treat somebody according to his or her deeds, it's called a wage. What's counterintuitive but called grace is to simply love them despite their needs. What is intuitive is to say, the last shall be last, and the first shall be first. Basic principle, economics, you know, of life. But what's counterintuitive but called grace is to say, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. So I reckon the Israelites in Jesus' day had damaged grace, and Jesus could have said to them, What have you done to grace? And so he tells an unsettling parable in Matthew 20. And you're going to open up that with me? It's a pretty simple parable, so it's not going to take us a long time to explain it. Matthew chapter 20. Take a look at it. Why are looking it up? It's a parable that causes you to reevaluate your life, really, to challenge your deepest held assumptions. I think it forces me to reevaluate. Now, on your outline, you've got what confounds your imagination, what fires your imagination in the parable. Because this is one of those parables that does make sense and confuse at the same time. With your pen, as you work through the parable, perhaps write down something that confounds you and confuses you and freaks you out about it. And write down something that actually fires you and makes sense for you. Write that down. That'd be a worthwhile thing to do. 19 verse 30, he says, Many who are the first shall be last, and many who are the last shall be first. Strange, but then he goes on and explains it. Verse 1 of verse uh, chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is not what you think. The kingdom of heaven is instead like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He owns the vineyard, the landowner, he works. The vineyard is his. He gets up at six in the morning. He hires all the workers that he can find and says, I'll pay you Verse 2, a denarius, a day's wage. Let's say 15 bucks an hour for 12 hours, hard day's work. Let's say it's $180 for the day. It's not too bad. That's a good wage. They think great, right? Off they go. Verse 2, no surprises there. Sounds like normal economics. It gets a little bit stranger in verse 3 because at the, at the third hour, which is 9am, the landowner goes out back into the marketplace. And you could ask the question, why? Why go back into the marketplace? Do you miscalculate the amount of work that was needed for the day? Did the original workers who were hired at 6 in the morning, did they not work hard enough? Was there not enough workers available at the beginning of the day? Why is he out there in the marketplace? But he finds some people in verse 4, he says, I, I'll pay you what's right, this time not saying what the pay would be. But they go off to work. And you imagine back at the vineyard, by the way, a busload of workers arrive, new workers. They've already been working for three hours. They say, good, we could do with a hand, perhaps. But, you know, you've got time while you're working in the vineyard. And so they do the math in, the he- math's in their head. And they think, well, I guess if it's, 100, it's 180 dollars a day, it's like 15 bucks an hour. They're working for 9 hours, so they'll get $135, say. But we're going to get $180. That's what they probably think for themselves. Verse 5, it happens again at midday, at the 6th hour. bus busload of workers arrive, they must be getting $90. Yeah, that's what happens when you guys work, you've got part-time jobs. Start your shift at your cafe at 9, someone comes in for a rush hour, get paid less than you. You do that math in your head, you don't even ask the question. You don't even ask them what they get paid. You just know that's the case. 3 p.m. at the ninth hour in verse 5 does the same thing. He seems very eager when the busload of workers arrive. The ones who've been working there all day say it must be $45 that they're going to get. But I think the most bizarre thing happens in verse 6 at the proverbial 11th hour which is 5 o'clock in the afternoon he comes in verse 6 he finds them standing around doing nothing he asks them why have you been standing around here all day doing nothing? You can see that in your Bibles. And they say in verse... Where is it? Verse 7. Because no one's hired us. And he says, well then you go and work also in my vineyard. One hour before quitting time? Quitting time? One hour before? I guess the sun's coming down, there's no heat of the day. I think, you beauty, I mean, what, I could do with an extra 15 bucks. I wonder if this lot, that are potentially very lazy, I wonder if this lot tried to wangle a drinks break at 11 and a half hours. Hardly possible. But I guess there's a bunch of people back saying, "Well, the landowner must do, do what he's doing." I guess uh, they're going to get paid fifteen dollars. Now, there's strangeness in the story as you hear it, and people, are of course, scratching their heads as I listen in Judea. But the parable of the workers in the vineyard—that's what it's called, according to NIV or your your Bible. Tradition has it that way. I want to rephrase it. I think the parable is suddenly becomes the parable of the bizarre paying landlord. (laughs) (laughs) Verse eight: when When the evening came, the work owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, "Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired." and then going to the first one's hire. Same idea at the end of chapter 19, by the way, first, last, last, first. But I guess you've got these hundreds of workers, one foreman, four men, and the last ones are the ones who are going to get their pay and get home first. In time for, say, seven o'clock television. News, best of Seinfeld, I'm so glad big brother's not on anymore. They're the ones who are going to get home first. And the ones who are hired first are standing at the back of the line so tired. Perhaps feeling jipped. We'll go with that thought, by the way. But verse 9, the the workers who were hired at the eleventh hour came and each received A denarius. 150 bucks for their hour. I call that good pay. Don't you? So, just working in in a vineyard? They're not, not, uh, you know, brain surgeons. It's just very, very, very good pay for an hour's work. Now, think about this. The brand new base pay rate is suddenly being whispered to the back of the line. It's no longer a denarius for a day's wage. It's a denarius for an hour's hour's work. It's 150 bucks is the base wage. So you can imagine that as the line goes back, the ones who uh, started at 5pm, they get 180 bucks. The ones who start at 3pm, they go... uh, What is it? I can't do maths. I'm so bad at maths. I know it's $540, but I did my calculator. <laughs> they get a stack of money. The ones who started at midday, they've been working for six hours. They get a bit over $1,000. That's what they're thinking. The ones who started at 9am uh, in the morning, for their nine hours' work, they're going to get paid a little over $1,500. The ones who started at 6am, they're, they're not feeling so jipped anymore. Because they're thinking that they're possibly going to get 12 scenarios. Uh, $2,160 for a day's work. Now, I think it wouldn't have been interesting if the parable had ended up that way to talk about grace. The,
1: the,
0: the, the, the master, is the landowner, is so generous, so overflowing in his grace that he could give $2,000 for a day's wage. I'm um, often if you hear people we'll talk about grace, you talk about, you know, tied away with mercy of grace. And what you've got in $2,000 for a day's work is more than a person deserves. Wouldn't it have be been interesting if the parable had gone that way? In fact, I think, especially if you've grown up in Sydney and you've learned a lot about the love of God, you would expect the parable to go up, to increase, because that's what we talk about, the love of God increasing. Because it's not that he's stingy, his love just goes up and up. So they're expecting it to be higher, which makes sense in verse 10. So when they, those who came were higher first, they expected to receive more. But each of them received a denarius 150 bucks. And when they received it, verse 11, they began to grumble against the landowner. Grumble against, very reminiscent of Israel in the wilderness. Receiving something good and then grumbling about it. Verse 12, they said, These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. Very reasonable, isn't it? But notice the warm and beautiful tone of the landowner. Look at verse 13. But he answered them, Friend, he's not like, You, friend, I'm not being unfair to you. That's not the issue. I was never being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Then I think he looks at them in the eye, and he sees behind the eyes to what the problem is. In verse fifteen, he says, "Or." Oh, Don't you think I have the right to do what I want without my own money? Is that your problem? That you want to tell me how to run my vineyard? Is that what you think? That you're telling me how to run my vineyard? Or, perhaps even more serious, are you just envious because I am generous? Because that's all that's happened here. That's all that has happened here. I've just been generous. So the last will be first, and the first, last. Did you write something down? Or did you think of something as you were listening to it? What confounds or fires your imagination? Did you didn't want to speak, the well, I... I you can actually speak if you'd like. Is there anything. I'm not expecting you, I understand that ears are fairly. But does anybody like to say what confi- confounds or fires your imagination? You don't have to, but you can if you want it. <laughs> no, you can if you want it. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Liz, sorry. Lauren <laughs> yes. I was going to say um, that the
1: letter is going through on the list that's then probably against you
0: Friend. yeah thank you anyone else want to join in? can I say that when I did this on a Bible study the ones who struggled most with it I, I think are the ones who you still had questions about whether or not they were loved by God and still had questions about what the gospel was really all about. Because it takes a story like this to really force it out in you. Three simple points to make in my mind. Number one on your outlines, from verses 1 and 2, God is fair, because I think the story is crafted perfectly. Because your objection that this is unfair is actually answered in the beginning of the parable. Verses 1 and 2. You clearly agreed to work for Adonaris. So it's not about fairness or unfairness. You gained something and you agreed to it. I I don't want to say too much about that, except just to say that the story is crafted to stop you from thinking that God is unfair from the get-go. That's the way the story operates. I guess clearly saying that God will do everything right and everything just. You agreed to work for a, gr- a great a day for a great rate, nothing unfair about it. I want to cast your mind for a moment to the first workers. Now, I, when I, I gave this talk in church just recently, and I'm not sure whether I made the point clearly. I've got a few blank pages, but I'm going to look for blank pages. Tell me if this works for you. Imagine the night before. And you catch up with these guys over dinner. You're at the pub with them. And you tell them about this landowner who's very generous. He pays really well. And he always pays on time. pays at the end of the day. But he's also really generous. You know, he recently donated $10,000 to the Salvation Army for one person to be restored in some way. Now, if you send them over the drinks do you think the landowner is unfair? My guess is that, say no. You can do with your money what you want, right? He's generous. I wouldn't mind being the recipient of $10,000. That is, you do have the right to do with your money what you want to. Now then imagine that morning... At the sixth hour, you on the bus to them and you say, $180 for the day, is that good? Is that unfair? I imagine they'd say, no, it's really good. In fact, the text tells you they're happy about that. And he can also give to the salvos. That he was fair was never the issue. He always was. But when does the real human nature get exposed? When do the contradictions in life come to the surface? When can you say, yes, we've wrecked grace? Well, I think it's when you compare yourself to somebody else and you simply say, I deserve more than them. Because then it actually comes to the surface and Jesus tells a story like this to make that point. One writer I read said this, suddenly we see that t- plainly the true poverty of the first workers. Everybody in the parable is tended with the wealth of the kingdom. You guys can talk about the Christian life, saying, The deep river of providence throws through every believer's life. God gives all believers a blessing so extravagant that no one could spend it all. A deluge of grace descends on us all. Torrents of joy and blessing fall everywhere. And there these one first hour workers stand. There they stand, drenched in God's mercy, an ocean of peace running down their faces, clutching their little contracts and whining that they deserve more rain. No, the landowner is just to the first workers. God is and always has been fair. But it's not only, it's not about fairness on one level, because the second point I think the parable makes is that God is actually pursuing God. So you could have actually told the parable where there's the first workers and the last workers, and that's it. I mean, there's only the first and last workers are the only ones compared, right? what are you doing with the other workers? Well, he goes out of the marketplace in the story. All day he goes out to the marketplace. It's not that he doesn't have employees to do that. He's got a busload. He could have just sent one worker back. He's got a foreman. He could have sent one worker to go and find other workers. But he's out there gathering people to work in his vineyard, presumably all day and every day. I find it interesting that the vineyard is an image in the Old Testament of the kingdom of God us well, flip your Bibles back to Isaiah 5. You don't need to come back to Matthew, or you can. Put something in there if you like. But flip your Bibles open to Isaiah 5, and let me show you something that I think is just stunning. Isaiah 5. Says Isaiah. Isaiah 5 verse 1. I says of his God, in beautiful language, he says, Elias says, I will sing a song about the one I love, God. I'll sing a song about the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one, God, had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up, he cleared it of stones, he planted it with the choicest vines, he built a wasp tower in it, he cut a winepress as well, he looked for a good crop of good grapes and it yielded only bad fruit. Now the dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judea judge between me and my vineyard. Do you love me or not? Verse 4 What more could I have done for my vineyard than I've done for it? What more could I have done for my vineyard than I have done for it? Do you get that idea of this parable that that the landowner really cares about things? But even more than that, because in Isaiah he goes on and says it's not really about the vineyard. And it's always been about the workers. Verse 7, look at this. Verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel that I've set my affection on. Because I've set my affection on them. The workers, the, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And I think you see that tender truth right here. God seems more interested in hiring workers and being generous than he does about the vineyard, than he does about the profit or the crop. He's found workers and he pursues them. And you find out that that's exactly what God is a pursuing God. But more importantly, in the parable, verses 8 to 10, he's a generous God. I think that seems to be the point. He can give as he pleases. Is he not able to do with his money what he wants to? Is he not free to save who he wants in his pursuit? Even a person like you. First hour or last hour, I don't know where we necessarily sit. A lot of debate about that. I want to say that grace is as earthy and as real and as simple as Christ on the cross. It's mysterious and difficult as relationships always are and Jesus tells a parable to kind of force that out in us. Because when you work out it's all about grace, you stop counting. You take in your next breath of forgiveness from the Lord and you thank him for it because he did not have to give you that forgiveness. Today you can breathe life in his name and a parable like this, where the money doesn't go up, Forces something out of you. Because if the money went up, you would be left thinking, it is all about me. But I think it forces a reaction that God is gracious to the last, or to the underdog, or to the person you might not expect, and He's allowed to be that way. I think it causes us to revaluate. Re-val- Conclusion When to say grace? Well, not just before dinner. Oh, good to say thanks to God for dinner. Let's do something more with grace than that. And not just before lunch either. But according to the, the parable, you to say grace before, during and after dinner, lunch and every day of your life, every minute of your life, every breath you take. And I'm not meaning a simple prayer, good as though that is. So the answer he calls this the bad mathematics of grace. You just go, oh, this doesn't work, the parable, the economics doesn't work. Jesus tells all sorts of parables like that, like leaving 99 sheep behind to go and rescue one. Doesn't make sense. Or a woman who wasted an enormous amount of perfume to pour on Jesus' feet. doesn't add up. And Judas points that out. In, uh... It's John third. uh... I'll find that out for tomorrow, and you can come tomorrow and find that out. Or well, Mark in chapter 12 tells the, the story of a woman who puts two copper coins in the treasury and says she gave more than the wealthy people. It's is not true. She didn't, right? Not in the actual dollars. But I guess Jesus always calls us to reevaluate. And you must, not be wary, you must be wary of actually talking about grace in such a way as the, that we wreck it, that we end up being the first workers. So when we are not humble, we do not get grace. When we think, I deserve better than another person, we begin to wreck grace. When we think, when we think even in life, I should have been invited to that person's party, not realising that an invite is always grace. Perhaps that might even give us an, an indication about how we feel about the Lord and about his graces towards us. When you think that one particularly bad person cannot be forgiven, what are you saying about yourself? When you accuse somebody of doing something that you yourself did yesterday, and you hold it against them, what are you saying about grace? When you say, I'm not interested in a person, what are you saying about grace? When you say, I'm not interested in... Hearing about the love of God from the Scriptures, what are we saying about the grasp of grace? Now I think that's a re-evaluation that we need to pray about. And I think it's a re-evaluation that helps us to grasp what happens next in Matthew's Gospel, but that's for week 10. Can I make a recommendation to you that you read Matthew's Gospel sometime in the next seven weeks before Andrew kind opens up the Passion Narratives? And I'm going to close in this prayer. Let's pray. Our dear Father, we pray that out of your, your glorious riches, we pray that you may strengthen us with power through your Spirit in our inner being, so that, we, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And we pray that we, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp just how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love which surpasses all knowledge that we may be filled to the measure of all your fullness, dear God. We pray this in Jesus' name.
1: Amen.